For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a look at how the youth vote may be counted on Election Day. Find out what the Rencon 16 gaming convention is all about. Meet four local Paralympians who share their experience competing in Brazil. And hear how a school garden has transformed a Westside Tucson Elementary on feeding our future. Those stories are coming up on Arizona Spotlight. Millennials are described as those aged 18 to 34, and they're considered the largest demographic group in the United States, according to the Census Bureau. In this election year, the question is, as always, will these young voters go to the polls? As Christopher Conover reports, campaigns are doing what they can to convince young voters to cast a ballot on Election Day. 43,000 students attend classes at the University of Arizona. More than double that number are enrolled at Arizona State University. The vast majority are eligible to vote, but once again the big question is, will they turn out at the polls? I just don't think I have the time to vote. I do plan on voting. She's never really been like that much of an importance to me. My vote matters. To reach this tech-savvy generation, voting advocates and parties are reaching out on platforms and with faces familiar to the younger voter. For nearly 30 years, MTV has encouraged viewers to cast a ballot with the Rock the Vote campaign. It doesn't matter what side you're on, voting is the party. Voting the political the party. parties are also out with videos. Earlier this month, Democrats launched a video featuring Hollywood stars, including many from the popular Avengers movie series, who made fans a promise. And if you do vote and help protect this country from fear and ignorance, Mark will do a nude scene in his next movie. Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo will do a nude scene in his next movie. Wait, what, what? Joking aside, the parties are also bringing their message to university campuses through clubs like the College Republicans. Sebastian Laguna is the president of the group at the University of Arizona. Our goal on campus is to try and engage students and get them involved in the political process. So that can be by bringing in interesting speakers who are talking about policy or it can be getting them plugged in with different candidates running for office. Campus is not home to just one political view. The University of Arizona Young Democrats, run by Allison Childress, are working hard also. We promote Democratic candidates to students on campus. We offer um, internships with Democratic candidates with the state party uh, to, our, to our students and really try to get them involved. During the presidential primary season, the Bernie Sanders campaign was very popular among students. The question for Democrats is will those same young voters go to the polls in November? Childress says the Democrats are doing what they can to keep that momentum going. We're trying to get them involved in you know, everything down to school board and corporation commission. Dealing with young voters who are registered is one issue, but many are not registered to vote and there are efforts to change that too. Elliot Bustamante graduated from high school last year. He's also a member of the Tohono O'odham Nation. Now he's trying to register students across the reservation near Tucson to vote. It's a little bit of a harder, harder thing to do on the reservation because we're so isolated and we're not aware of all these problems that are happening across the United States. And with the vote, we can, it'll go far if we just 
if we're aware of who's running for a higher position in the United States. Campaigns hoping to leverage the new voters or younger voters who aren't so interested need to communicate with them in ways they are familiar. Sebastian Laguna with the College Republicans says the campaigns need to get online and use social media. If they do want to reach out to the younger audience, they have to put in some resources. So it doesn't have to be, you know, coming to campus and shaking every hand, but it, it does uh, involve, you know, reaching out, uh, doing uh, social media, things like that. Social media is an important part of campaigning when trying to reach younger voters. But Dr. Suda Ram, a social media expert at the University of Arizona's Eller College of Management, says social media really cuts across all demographics. Roughly in the, in the world, about 75 to 80 percent of adults who are online are actually on social media. Dr. Ram says social media is an influencing platform. It's not necessarily just an echo chamber where people hear only what they want to hear. If you think about politics today, um, there's a lot more people who want to know about the issues. There are a lot more independents, there are a lot more undecided voters, and it's these people that actually social media makes a big difference. So I feel that when politicians or other people post their message, they can talk about issues and it's certainly going to help persuade people on social media. Social media, platform issues, registration drives, will they get the younger voters to participate? We won't know the answer to that question until November 9th, the day after the election. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Christopher Conover. Roald Dahl is credited with saying, life is more fun if you play games. These days, there are more games to choose from than ever before. This weekend, Friday through Sunday, there's a gathering in Tucson that celebrates games of all types, old and new. Amanda Martinez spoke with two participants to find out what Rencon 16 is all about. Karen, can you tell us a little bit about the history of Rencon? Rencon is Southern Arizona's uh, biggest gaming convention. And there was about a five-year period where they um, where it was going on um, annually. Then there was about a two-year hiatus during which we had a bit of a um, management turnover. And then this year is our fifth year in the current instantiation with the current board. So you're organizing the convention? And what about you, Seth? Why do you want to be involved? Uh, in the absence of a convention, I picked up the ball and said, let's, let's make this happen. Kind of for selfish reasons. I wanted a convention I could attend here in town. The more we can get people to go to them and grow the hobby, the more games we'll get to play and the more people we'll get to play with them. So what type of games can people expect to find at the convention? On our schedule, we have a wide variety of different types of games, anything from popular board games to tabletop miniatures gaming with uh, Warhammer or little uh, painted miniatures that represent your forces. Also uh, role-playing games, pen and paper role-playing games. We don't have a lot of video gaming at the convention, but we do have something called Artemis, which is a spaceship simulator, especially a bridge simulator, as if you were on the bridge of the Enterprise, for example, and you've got uh, one person is the captain and each other person has a particular station, weapons or engineering or shields, and they have to communicate and work together to uh, achieve the mission, whatever the mission might be. In the uh, special programming section, we have things like giant board games, where we have life-size versions of a good number of board games. We have uh, Settlers of Catan, which is kind of one of the 
founding games that influenced where board gaming is as a as an industry now. It broke it into the um, the kind of the more the public eye. Um, we have another um, giant pyramids, which is a set of games um, that use kind of pyramid shaped pieces that are that were designed by one of our special guests, Andy Looney. And we have a giant version of life size version of those. So you're running around and actually moving two and a half foot tall pyramids on a uh, on a, on a big area. What do people looking from the outside usually miss about a convention like this? They can miss how welcoming it is. You can get, it's easy to get caught up in how many different events there are and how many games there are and how many types of games and how many people there are. But really when it comes down to it, convention attendees want to share their passion, their hobby, and the thing that they love, which is to have fun playing games. So you're thinking about things like inclusivity and making sure people feel welcome. What do you do as an organizer to make sure that happens? We make sure that it is very clear that at the beginning of each game session that there is time set aside for teaching the games to people who might not be familiar with it. Um, We also have a um, comprehensive um, harassment policy to make sure that we do not stand for any kind of um, exclusion, harassment, anything like that. We're very clear, we are here to build community. Okay, and there's gonna be people who have a lot of gaming experience and don't have so much gaming experience. What type of events are you gonna have to do to target that group and everyone in between? We have a couple of events that are tournaments, so that is for the people who are really um, passionate about a a particular game and experienced in that particular game, where they can really compete against other people who are also very good at it. Um, But we also have um, events that are really for the rank beginner, um, including uh, Kids Track this year. This is a series of events uh, we call the Kids Track um, that constitutes programming that is designed for um, younger gamers, so between the ages of 6 and 12. There are always lots of um, families who bring their kids to these events. Um, it's just great to watch the the light come into a kid's eyes as they realize the strategy that they have to use to play a game or they learn a new type of trick or they, um, they just they get it. Amanda Martinez spoke with event organizers and avid gamers Karen Arnold Ewing and Seth Jaffe. The RenCon 16 Gaming Convention is this weekend from noon Friday through 6 p.m. Sunday at the Sheraton Hotel near Grant and Rosemont in Tucson. The complete schedule is at rencongames.com. Stay tuned for more Arizona Spotlight right after this break.
In August, the eyes of the world were focused on Brazil for the 31st Modern Olympic Games. Following that event, the 15th Paralympic Games took place. Those games may not have had as much press coverage, but the competition was just as intense. Tony Paniagua met four returning Paralympic athletes with University of Arizona connections at a U of A tailgate party last weekend. Brian Barton is the head coach for tennis at the University of Arizona's Adaptive Athletics Program. He trains students who play in wheelchairs, and he is also an athlete and competitor. Barton has traveled all over the world for his matches, including the Paralympic Games in London in 2012. The Paralympics in Rio were his second attempt for a gold, silver, or bronze. He wasn't successful, but he says his time in Brazil is memorable. It was a great experience. I mean, first of all, just an honor to represent my country, put the USA jersey on and compete. But um, my competition was just a small portion of the total experience over there. Um, the Brazilian people, the people of Rio, uh, can be very proud of the Olympics that they put on. It was excellent. There was a lot of concern, a lot of talk about the violence, the crime, the Zika virus. How would you describe your experience there? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we were all a little nervous based on what, what the media was, was saying about uh, Rio uh, and, and Brazil, but it, they couldn't, couldn't have been more wrong. <laughs> the water was clean. The people were extremely friendly, proud of their country, and, and couldn't do enough to make sure that we had a good time. I mean, everybody was super friendly and accommodating. 25-year-old Dana Mathewson trained under Coach Barton while earning her bachelor's degree at the University of Arizona. She's also competing internationally, but this was her first time at the Paralympic Games. No medal, but she says it was a great learning opportunity. I had a kind of a tough draw. My first round I won. I'm really happy with how I played. But my second round I played the number three in the world, and um, she played phenomenally. She, she beat me pretty handedly, but... Um, you know, she went on to win a silver medal, so I can't fault for that. And my doubles, I won my first round with my partner, Caitlin Verfirth, who's also from Arizona. And we played against the Brazilian team that was on center court, probably my favorite experience. And then uh, second round, we lost to the silver medalist again. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not disappointed for a first experience and to get some wins under my belt was, was really big. I took a hiatus from tennis for a couple years and I only came back about two years ago. So me qualifying for Rio was a bit of a long shot, um, but I knew I wanted to at least try it. So I was traveling to get as many ranking points as I could and I, I just happened to be able to do it. I've been living out of a suitcase, but I've really been loving it, seeing the world and some of my best friends now are on the tour. So it's been an amazing year. Jen Poise is a 27-year-old pharmacist in Tucson who graduated from the U of A last year. She competed in wheelchair basketball where Team USA won the gold. Um, it was a really great experience. Uh, we had a lot of tournaments over the summer where we had a lot of success as a team. So going to Brazil and being, being able to bring home gold was just kind of like the icing on the cake for us. It was something that we had been working towards all year and we're you know, pretty successful leading up to Brazil, so to be able to continue that success there, it was really great. It was a pretty intense game. We played Germany in the finals, and they've been our rival for the past, you know, as long as I can remember. They actually were the defending gold medalists. They won gold in London. In our minds, we weren't the underdogs, but a lot of other countries looked at us as being the underdogs this year, so it was pretty great to just win that gold and have that experience, especially with 11 other people that you're really close with. This is my second Paralympics, so it's kind of what I wanted to accomplish. I got my gold medal, so I'm pretty content with where I'm at. 
I am not looking forward to going on to Tokyo in 2020, so this is kind of where it ends for me. So I'll just be working out for fun. Shirley Riley is a senior at the U of A who is majoring in government and public policy. She also returns to Tucson with a medal, winning a bronze in wheelchair track. I did three events. I did the 400 meter, the 800 meter, and the marathon. And it was a lot of fun. Um, I got fifth place in the 400, I got a bronze in the 800, and I got fifth in the marathon. What was that like? It was exciting. I was really relieved. <laughs> um, I've been trying to get at least one medal while I was there, and I was able to do that. I'm 31, so I made my first Paralympics back in 2004 in Athens. I was 19 years old. <laughs> Are you done because you got a bronze, or do you think you're going to keep going? Um, I, I'm not going to say I'm done because I, I'm not exactly 100% satisfied with how I, everything went. Um, so maybe as long as my body holds up, I'm up for Tokyo. <laughs> Coach Barton, who is 42 years old, doesn't know yet whether he'll try for the Paralympic Games in Tokyo in 2020. But Dana Mathewson, the other wheelchair tennis player, is looking forward to that goal. All of the athletes, whether they'll try again or not, say adaptive athletics have been transformative. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Tony Paniagua. Jim Click's Run and Roll, an annual event that raises funds for the University of Arizona's Adaptive Athletics Program, will be held this Sunday, October 2nd, on the U of A Mall. Registration for events begins at 6 a.m., or you can follow the link for information on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Next, the third installment in our nine-part series, Feeding Our Future. It explores the innovative work being done to feed families, prepare for climate change, improve health, create pathways out of poverty, and promote our local food system. The series is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. Monzo Elementary School is a small neighborhood school that was built in the 1930s, but lately it's garnered national attention as a model for school garden programs. Gardens have changed how teachers teach, how students learn, and even what the kids eat in the school cafeteria. Laura Markowitz brings us the story. It's recess at Monzo Elementary School in Barrio, Hollywood. All of the chickens got out of the chicken tractor. Kids have to catch the chickens to put them back in the coop. Moses Thompson came to Monzo 10 years ago as the school counselor. Do you guys want to help catch the chickens? Hey, nice work. When I first came in, it was kids in crisis constantly and fighting and kids bringing, you know, lighters and knives and mom and dad's weed and pills to school. Thompson started taking kids down the street to help him restore an abandoned garden. While they weeded and watered, they talked traditional school counseling, just to read them stories and act things out with puppets and how much more effective is it to give kids a real job that they have to cooperate and communicate on to accomplish. Soon all the kids wanted to go to the garden with Mr. Thompson, so he decided he would build a tortoise habitat garden on the school campus. Parents and grandparents stepped up to help and so did the kids. Together they built a 40-foot long stone wall. We had 12 tons of rock dumped into the parking lot, and over about three months, the kids, rock by rock, carried it in here, and we taught the kids how to mix mortar. This is the beginning of the story of Monzo's school garden. From here, it ripples out to a long list of community partners, 
The National Park's first bloom program installed the vegetable garden. The Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona found money for the chicken coop and the aquaponics system and the composting infrastructure. A local church funded the greenhouse. Businesses and foundations funded rainwater harvesting, microgardens, and native habitat gardens. And then people showed up to help. Former Peace Corps volunteers and University of Arizona interns. Monzo Elementary School turned into a national model for school gardens. It was written up in National Geographic. The kids here are used to seeing camera crews and people with microphones taking tours of their campus. What you see on one of those tours the gardens are not just landscaping, they are learning spaces. This is Mrs. Mendoza's third, fourth grade combined classroom. We're just working on some scientific posters. That's Michelle Coe. It's about the Leo experiment. And that's a third grader named Valeria. Coe started out as an intern with the U of A's Community and School Garden Program, and now she coordinates the program's sustainable environmental education. The LEO is housed at Biosphere 2. Uh, the LEO is Landscape Evolution Observatory. And you can picture it as three really large hill slopes that have thousands of sensors under the soil, and they're tracking everything on the landscape. Here at Monzo Elementary, we have the mini LEO, which is a micro scale of those larger landscapes. Biosphere wanted our help. Big Leo scientists gave the class a list of plants to choose from. We picked two plants and we were, were seeing if um, it'll grow in our volcanic soil. The kids used the greenhouse to create a controlled environment. It's right outside their classroom. We planted velvet mesquite and uh, white thorn acacia. This third grader's data will help determine which plants get tested on Biglio. Our plants were dying, and they were drying up and changing different colors. The kids simulated a drought because Biglio is looking at the effects of climate change. So what we did is started to water them as usual. Now they look fantastic. None of this is going to be on the state's standardized tests at the end of the year. Those tests are high stakes. Until recently, Monzo was an underperforming school. There's a lot of pressure on teachers to keep scores up. But classroom teacher Lydia Mendoza says this curriculum helps her students. This allows them to be able to read information and be able to problem solve. All that continuous problem solving allows for them to even be able to take a test much better. Nearly all the curriculum at Monzo ties in somehow to the garden. Nearly every classroom has a micro garden right outside the door. You can literally prop your door open um, and send two kids out with their observation notebooks and it's not a big production. The garden outside the classroom for kids with disabilities has a ramp for wheelchair access. Are you ready? Do you want to say hi? Hey, are you guys counting? We are counting worms. Want some real worms to count? No. <laughs> Kim Carson teaches K through second exceptional education. That's the new term for special ed. Did you see my pumpkins? No. It took 138 days from planting a whole pumpkin, and we've got two babies coming. Oh, really? They're right there. That's awesome. And so you've used as a way to teach counting? Yeah, in groups of five. 
a more effective way to teach math is to have the kids collect data on something that's real. Let's look at egg production in our chicken coop. And let's look at feed usage. And let's use math to find out if the, the chickens are laying enough eggs and we're selling the eggs at the right price point to cover all of our costs. Eggs are a big business at Monzo. Every two weeks, the kids run the Monzo market. They sell eggs and produce from the gardens, and a few times a year, they also sell tilapia from the aquaponics garden. We always joke that, that it's part of the slow food movement because you've got to wait for a third grader to count your change and maybe sometimes count it two or three times before they get it right. Students get a 50% employee discount. It's a way we can value their effort and make the food more accessible. Food insecurity is a big problem in Barrio Hollywood. Nearly all the kids at Monzo qualify for free or reduced lunch. The school gardens help feed the students and their families, and the food is organic and affordable. During Monzo Market, you'll see kids searching their backpack for like quarters and dimes, and kid can bring home a half dozen eggs, you know, just by the change he's got in his backpack. And the kids are excited to eat and buy what they grow. They feel, I think there's a sense of pride. Monzo's garden was the first in Pima County and one of the first in the state to be certified by the health department. Tucson Unified School District's food services can serve the food that the kids grow in Monzo's school cafeteria. Shirley Sokol is TUSD's food services director. This is our central warehouse. We've made a lot of changes and the Monzo School Garden really inspired us. TUSD created a new position, the farm to school chef. That's Ronnie Olson. She works with, for example, Monzo Elementary and the students there. And whatever they're harvesting at the time, she will pull and develop dishes. Chef Ronnie is developing a garden fresh line so that we will continually introduce new things. TUSD serves a population that's at high risk for obesity and diabetes. We have proven through surveys that the more nutrition education we do, the more taste testing and sampling that we do, the more they will eat the fresh produce. And they have a say in which ones they like. At Monzo's annual fiesta, Chef Ronnie stands out in her white chef's jacket. So we've got three things. Lemon sautéed Swiss chard, pollo con basil, and then a roasted vegetables and Swiss chard. Parents, grandparents, and kids tear themselves away from the ring toss and the kettle corn to try a free sample. I had one of each. What's your favorite? They're good. This one with the spinach. But it's actually Swiss It's so good. I'm not a big vegetable person, but it's good. Rudyard Kipling once wrote, Gardens are not made beautiful by singing, Oh, how beautiful, and sitting in the shade. Gardens take work. None of the garden work was in Moses Thompson's job description. He did it all as a labor of love. Now TUSD has created a full-time garden program coordinator position, but that person isn't Moses Thompson. His new position is school garden program coordinator for all 87 schools in the district. This is a joint appointment with the University of Arizona. TUSD is investing in school gardens. And that might be the most important piece of the model. School gardens don't just need soil and seeds and sunshine and water. They need investors and advocates and visionaries. For Arizona Spotlight, this is Laura Markowitz.
Production of Feeding Our Future is made possible with the support of the Zuckerman Family Foundation. To learn more, visit azpm.org. Next week, Episode 4 of Feeding Our Future. She goes, if you're interested in gardening, the garden's right around the corner. And I go, I don't know anything about gardening. The Community Food Bank of Southern Arizona wants to address the root cause of hunger, shortening the line, next week on Arizona Spotlight. Thank you for listening. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes. The show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Our executive producer is Peter Michaels. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore.